You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the COVID virus 19 Gangland Wire studio. Everybody's staying home, and you know I'm putting out these extra podcasts right now. I hope I'm keeping you entertained. I'm doing my little bit since I can't go out in the streets and and deal with people. You know, there was nothing worse during the early uh, AIDS thing, the HIV thing, is policemen would go out and somebody would spit on you, and then they'd say, yeah, and I got AIDS, man, so you got it too, and shit like that. And I understand there's already been some COVID virus people or, you know, people doing that and saying they've got the the virus. So, I mean, it's, uh, i tell you what, uh, people are crazy out there, man. They're nuts. So I, I, I miss it in some ways, but in other ways, I don't miss it. And you know Tonight we have uh, another former policeman on here, Rick Perello. Now, uh, you may have heard of him if you've ever seen the movie Kill the Irishman or seen the uh, the documentary, which uh, I used to be on YouTube. I don't know if it still is. I haven't looked at it in a long time. And then the the book, too, that he wrote about that. So uh, he's written several other books. Uh, and also have our uh, contributor from Munster, Indiana, a suburb of Chicago, in which there's a blanket of snow on the ground right now, Cam Robinson. So Cam and, and Rick, particularly, Rick, welcome. Good morning, Gary. Good, good to be here. Good to be here. Right. You got any cl- snow in Cleveland or the Cleveland area? We did have uh, about a quarter a quarter of an inch, just a little blanket, but it's actually, uh, I think, just about melted. Okay. What about you, Cam? You still got it up there? Uh, you know, I, I, it was coming down about uh, 20 minutes ago. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it disappears pretty quickly. All right. So, folks, we're also doing a uh, YouTube video of this uh, podcast if you want to watch us all three we're trying a a new experiment i've never done it with three people before cam and i have done several and i've done some with just myself and larry henry uh, the mob museum blogger but uh, this first time we've tried it with three so i'm kind of anxious to see what this looks like but first of all rick uh uh, you know we i know that you're former copper and former chief of police and i I, I'm, i'm sorry i cannot remember the city but i also know that you've written Three books. Most recent is Bombs, Bullets, and Bribes. Uh, was your first one Kill the Irishman? Actually, Bombs, Bullets, and Bribes, Gary, is my fourth book. Uh, Kill the Irishman was Kill the Irishman was my second title. Okay, so uh, why don't you go over your three books, kind of in, in the order in which you did them. Tell us just a little bit about them. People might want to go out there and buy them. I know I've read Kill the Irishman, and I'm about halfway through uh, the uh, Bombs, Bullets, and Bribes, the Alex Shonder Burns story, which is a really interesting story. I like those stories of those mob associates and affiliates and that that were you know just as bad or, or worse than any of the actual mafia members so tell run us through the uh the whole gamut of your books well i'm, I'm excited about that title because my current project is i'm working with a co-writer uh to develop a, a mini a mini series a limited series based on Shonda Burns' oh, really? story uh, based on bombs, bullets, and bribes. So, so that's my fourth title. But you know, I got interested in this as a a um, a, a boy, really ten, twelve, thirteen years old, when I found out or heard tell that my grandfather had been murdered uh, during Prohibition. He was killed in 1932. So that planted a seed for me to to do the research that led to my first book. Uh, that came out, well, it's been quite a while, 1995 with Barricade Books. It's called The Rise and Fall of the Cleveland Mafia. 
And it's basically about the beginning of the uh, uh, mob here in Cleveland, Northeast Ohio, in the story of uh, my grandfather and his six brothers, the Pirello brothers and the, the four Leonardo brothers and uh, their, their, uh, their involvement in what was called the Sugar War, which was a series of battles over control of corn sugar, which, is, which as you know, it obviously was a, a very lucrative ingredient uh, commodity to be in during Prohibition. Rise and Fall of the Cleveland Mafia came out in 95. That led to uh, To Kill the Irishman, my second book, which was almost like a, uh, a sequel, Gary, uh, to, to the first book. And then uh, in the middle, I, I, I got a uh, letter um, from someone interested in talking to me about writing uh, his his story, and, and I wound up uh, collaborating on a... Uh, a true crime story told from the perspective of one of the main players, and it's called Super Thief, and it's the story of the biggest bank heist in U.S. history. These are all uh, mobbed-up burglars from uh, Northeast Ohio, Cleveland, and in in Youngstown, and that that is actually was adapted for film, and it was supposed to start shooting in right. May here yeah. in Cleveland, but as you know, we're, we're so many things have been suspended and affected by the COVID nineteen. Pandemic, so I got my fingers crossed, and I'm I'm uh, waiting to see what happens. You know, there. Rick, I was just talking with somebody the other day. One of the, I think one of the uh, wiretappers, one of my podcast fans out there, and we were emailing. And I said, you know, I wish that we would get another heist movie out there. I love heist movies. Mm-hmm. I love those kind of complicated stories. And I was, I was thinking, you know, that uh, uh, the burglary of Bertha's out in Las Vegas, where the uh, Tony Spilatro crew got caught That's on right. the inside. And, and I love those stories, man, I, especially that one, because I was involved in one of those where we caught some mob burglars <laughs> on the inside. But uh, but so we do have one coming out, the Super Thief, or at least getting ready to be made. I was, I, I'm looking forward to that, man. I love those stories. I have always kind of touted it uh, uh, with, with the uh, original pr- uh, producer who took an interest in it, uh, Tommy Reed, who is also the producer Tommy uh, uh, marshaled to kill the Irishman through uh, along with uh, code entertainment to to be uh, become the movie kill the Irishman but I've always thought of super thief as the next big heist flick so I'm on the right on the same uh, page with you good it sounds a little bit like uh, you say is out in LA I think wasn't it it sounds a little bit like uh, heist <laughs> I need to get Robert de Niro and Al Pacino right <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, the, heat, the, heat, that's it, uh, not heat, Heist. Yeah, heat. heat, yeah. There is a movie out there called Heist, I think, but that was Heat. Yeah, it was the United California Bank Heist. Uh, Cam, I'm not sure if you've heard of that before, but it was a big one. It was, um, I think, 1972 in Orange County, California, Laguna right. Niguel, California. And it was a it was a big one, and um, it's a great story told told from the from the inside by Phil Christopher, who was their uh, their main alarm uh, their alarm man. You know, I I, I wrote the book, you know, uh, based on his uh, thousand page manuscript, much of which he had written while he was serving time. It's just a great it's a great story, and I'm 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 not surprised that Hollywood took an interest, but. Uh, Hopefully, like I said, I've got my fingers crossed that they'll start uh, start filming soon. 
it's incredible. There used to be a time when you had your your alarm guy or your your safe guy or there was your there was your surveillance guy. I mean, there were these they had these specialties and and they knew where to turn and and depending on what city you were in, you had these these guys with these very specific skills who could who could be called upon for for these major jobs and and they were sort of contractors out. It, it was really really impressive and 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 you found the guy for this job. I mean, that that sounds like you really really got uh it was a really good find, Rick. Yeah, yeah. They put together some some really good teams. You know, I mean, you've heard it said it's almost almost become uh, kind of a trite uh, 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 saying or philosophy that if these guys would have devoted their their energies and passions and ambition to legitimate uh, business or enterprises, they could have been successful legitimately. You know? I've I've told a couple of guys. One of them was an informer. He had a stolen auto theft ring going. He had like a a guy that went out and spotted him. He had a guy with the Wyandotte County Sheriff's Department that ran the uh, tag to get the address on him. And then uh, he was a key maker, and he had another guy that broke into him and got the key codes. And at one point in time, you could find the key codes inside of a, a car in the uh, paperwork. And, and, and then he had another guy that stole him with the key. And then he had another guy that cut him apart. And then other guys that then distributed the parts uh, as they went out throughout the mid states area distributing the parts i said man if you just put all that organizational building into some kind of a legitimate thing you said i wouldn't be fun in that right right i i, I told i have i interviewed this michael de leonardo dude uh, not too long ago he's in the witness protection program he was uh, he was one of Gotti's boys really and and I said, you know, I said, you're just like that other guy I know. If you'd taken this charisma and and, and native intelligence and, and ability to, to get things done and put it into a legitimate business, you'd have done good. He said, well, thank you for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's interesting. Uh, you also have... Uh, 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 kill the Irishman. So, uh, see, I think we've done Rise and Fall and Super Thief and talked a little bit about bombs, bullets, and bribes. Uh, I think we got people stirred up enough that they want, probably want to go out and get these books and, mm-hmm. and take a look at them. It really sound interesting. Uh, kill the Irishman. That's that's the one that you, you made your bones with, right? You earned your bones with <laughs> Kill the Irishman, didn't you, Rick? Well, that's that's got a certain connotation to it, but... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, that was um, that was quite a project. Like I said, the pr- producer Tommy Reed, who came to me, uh, well before the book was even on the shelf, uh, and it was a self-published title, which was even uh, more amazing than oh, it I didn't know that. Adapted cool. for film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's hope for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cheers. But, uh, I you know I was approached by uh, Tommy. I think it was 1997. The book wasn't even on the shelf, and then. Uh, Acquired the services of um, of a, uh, a book and film agent, Peter Miller of uh, Global Lion, Global Lion Inle- Intellectual Property Management, and he put the whole contract together. And then I sat back and I waited and I waited and I waited. <laughs> and Tommy worked and worked and worked and worked. And uh, then Code Entertainment and uh, gosh, uh, it was a Bart Bart Rosenblatt and uh, Al Corley. They came on board and. And finally, in 2009, uh, Peter Peter Miller called me and said, hey, they green-lighted your film, it's moving forward. And at that point, I didn't know if it was a made-for-TV movie or made-for-cable uh, uh, or what, but uh, like, like Tommy Reed had wanted, this was going to be a big-screen uh, picture with a theatrical release, and that's, uh, that's exactly what happened with some fantastic uh, entertainment. I mean, when Peter was telling me who was... Uh, 
who was involved. I mean, I almost fell off my my, my right. chair with the amount of talent. This fantastic ensemble cast of yeah, it was of a, actors, it was a who's actors. who of of, uh, of mafia character actors in the in that movie. Bless Christopher yeah, Walken. Yeah. <laughs> really, you know, Rick. I, I have to tell you that I have to tell you that you really inspired me because I've always been. You know, a mob fan. I worked at Bob for 13 years, but I've I've also been like a fan, and I'm always fascinated with how they work. And so I first, I guess, in on YouTube, I stumbled in a documentary called Kill the Irishman, and then I heard the movie was coming out. And and when I saw that documentary, I thought, man, that was exactly like a mob war we had in Kansas City. And and I ended up finally doing that documentary here recently called. Uh, all of a sudden, I forgot the name of my own movie, uh, Brothers Against Brothers. Brothers Against Brothers. Yeah, yeah. the uh, uh, Savella Spiro War. But uh, I finally made that story. I made another one before that about the skim. But but that Kill the Irishman, it just it stirred me. It's like, yeah, we had that same kind of a, a generational uh, gap between the older guys and the younger guys. And the older guys wanting to keep the younger guys squeezed out, and and the younger guys said, "Oh no!" And in this case, we were they were all Italian rather than part Irish, but they were all Italian. But they they went to went to war over it, and we had bombings and shootings and killings about the same time, and in, in the seventies and late seventies. So, uh, kind of really got me going. So you were you were a real inspiration to me. You also both towns had the skim. Uh, at that at that time, that was uh, something. That right, was, yeah. Both cities had the skim going towns. too. You guys were getting Milton Rockman was uh, calling right. Nick Savella, and Nick Savella was calling Milton Rockman, and and he was coordinating the skim, and Rockman was driving up to Chicago, and and the Kansas City Mafia or Kansas City FBI was telling Chicago, hey, you know, we we got word that he's on his way, and then they'd set a surveillance and watch him pick up the skim to go back, and and so it's. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of parallels there. Yeah. You know, another parallel with Cleveland is Roy Lee Williams was owned by Nick Savella, the the mob boss here in Kansas City, and Jackie Presser, he was owned by yeah. the Cleveland family, and if, and he was a big teamster. He was actually he was top echelon informant at the same time, I understand, but, uh, yeah. but uh, you know, they, they had those other parallels going, although Kansas City really was kind of under Chicago. Cleveland was more under, I believe, the Genovese family, if I remember right. I, I believe so, yeah. Hey, yeah. yeah. You mentioned Jackie Presser being an informant, and Danny Green was a uh, top echelon informant, too. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard that. I tell you, these guys, they're, <laughs> they're bold, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Rick, finding the right story is really where it's at, and and, and that's that, that something about, like, like, like Gary said, I mean, uh, the Killy Irishman inspired him, I'm, I'm sure. It, I mean, it, it it definitely inspired me too. I mean, that was that's that's got me hunting and hunting and pecking all over for for that right exact story. And 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 still to this day, I remember watching Kill the Irishman. That was that was and and then hunting out the book. And that that was really one of the things that got me on these targeted searches for finding that one that one story. I mean, you, that was. The story of Danny Green was something that was that was sort of around and and would would pop up in searches, but but you really nailed it and did the research and and got in the middle of it. That was I, I really think that 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 served as a springboard for a lot of people who who, especially with it being a self published, a lot of people who it sort of was a catalyst for a lot of this organized crime things that, that spun out of of that year basically, uh, as like Gary and 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 sort of to a lesser extent. 
myself and 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 other people throughout this organized crime thing is, has become really big and I, I i think that 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 played a little part in that i'm told that uh with the rise and fall of the cleveland mafia coming out in yeah, 95 yeah that, absolutely that it, yeah that it kind of sparked a um an interest in 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 writers either established writers or or, or new new authors to uh research regional uh mafia you know mm-hmm. these smaller cities with the mob you know you think new york you think chicago maybe las vegas but you know, as we all know, there was what maybe, depending on how you count them, roughly two dozen uh, right. mafia families, crime families across the country. And each one, like Cleveland, like Kansas City, like Milwaukee, uh, 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 Pittsburgh, uh, Philadelphia, and on and on, they each each had their own story and their own stories, I should say, and their own history. And I believe that many of uh, those those local or regional history history mafia stories followed barricade books publishing my rise and fall of the cleveland mafia mm-hmm. and kelly irishman i mean that was pretty well documented by the uh the media down there what what kind of sources did did you use in that there was a ton of paper on danny green there were of course we had the plane dealer uh the, the cleveland press uh, the two big newspapers we had cleveland magazine which did some tremendous um insightful uh, investigative reporting um, on, on organized crime, and then of course all the law enforcement agencies, court documents, and uh, and I was able, and, and not, and really not uh, th- through my um, or as part of my career as a law enforcement officer, I, re- I really never let those things cross over. Although it's it's rather uh, uh, coincidental that I would wind up working for the very police department that uh, where, where Danny Green was finally murdered after all those uh, uh, attempts that the mob made on him. Because Cleveland is, is made up of, of, um, of dozens of suburbs. You know, it's not just Cleveland and two or three suburbs and then Cuyahoga County. There's, there's I think, uh, at least 59 just in Cuyahoga County. And then there's there's many. There's probably a hundred suburbs in, in in Greater Cleveland, and I wound up working for Lindhurst, which is where Danny Green in 1977, when I was just uh, about 15 years old or so, he, where he was finally uh, murdered by car bomb. So that's uh, just kind of ironic, kind of uh, coincident, coincidental, I would say. Yeah, well, it, that mob war affected the whole area, especially when they started setting off bombs and stuff. That that affects everybody in there. Oh yeah, that mm-hmm. that that got a lot of attention from the from the uh, law enforcers. Oh yeah. So just kind of re- <laughs> kind of remind people what the uh, what the conflict was in there. Uh, those that are not familiar with the story, what was the conflict between Danny Green and the, uh, the organized crime family? And it's such a, you know, Cleveland has had so many Jewish uh, uh, yeah, uh, associates and so many, I mean, Milton Rockman was right up there in the top, you know, I mean, in Kansas was, City, yeah. we had a couple of Jewish associates, but they weren't anywhere close to uh, a Milton Rockman kind of a, a status that, that knew about the skim and would help distribute the skim, for example. That was that showed pretty high status by a, a yeah. non-Sicilian. So at that... Uh, uh, Had Macy Rockman been Italian, he, he would have been an underboss, probably. Mm-hmm. So tell, tell the people just kind of how that conflict got started. Yeah, so Danny Danny Green was, was really a mafia associate. He was an Irish-American racketeer, very, very proud of his Irish uh, Celtic history. Uh, uh, good organizer. He started out as a longshoreman, became president of the Longshoremen's Union, 
the ILA. He was ousted for stealing from the union, became an FBI informant, got in with uh, some older mobsters uh, like Chandra Burns, the subject of my current book, Frank Brancato, sort of became uh, an enforcer for them and... Uh, and and had had eyes really that that he didn't like the Italians unless he could cooperate them cooperate with them for his benefit yeah. then then it was okay but otherwise he didn't he didn't like the Italians and he felt that the the um, the Irish should should be on top and they should be in in control of the rackets and the skim money that you and Cam were just talking about that's uh, portrayed in the movie Casino, as we know. In uh, 1976, the stage got set when the longtime mob boss, John Scalish, died. He died uh, during um, uh, heart surgery and had really never named a successor. Actually, it was Milton Rockman or Macy Rockman, uh, who he uh, was, his, they were uh, brothers-in-law. And they had married in, uh, he and, and uh, Macy Rockman, John Scalish, Angelo Leonardo, they were intermarried, the wives and sisters. And supposedly, John Scalish told Macy Rockman that he wanted Jack Licavoli to take over. And, and some, of, some of the guys felt that that may have been uh, Rockman trying to influence things. But at any rate, uh, Jack Licavoli, one of the old-timers, took over. He became the boss. And, but, but there was a war that was sparked by this temporary uh, leadership vacuum and this uncertainty about who would be in charge. So on one side, you had the main uh, faction of the Cleveland Mafia under uh, 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 James Licavoli, Jim Licavoli, or, or Jack White, as they would call him. And then on the other side, you had Danny Green and a guy, a labor union official, a union official, Teamster union official, who who he had partnered with, John Nardi. Nardi was a mafia associate who always felt that he should have been inducted into the mob, and he was a little pissed off about that. So he he uh, partnered up with Danny Green, and, and this war began, and, and the weapon of choice was bombs, and there were a lot of bombs going off. Not quite like the movie uh, uh, portrays. There wasn't a major bombing every day. Uh, you know, people, people ask me. I've, I've made quite a nice sideline doing presentations and one of the questions I get asked is about the accuracy of the uh, the, uh, the 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 movie and I always say look the movie is the Hollywood version of the story you know if if you want to know more uh, about the true story you got to read the book or you mentioned the documentary before um, the, uh, Danny Green the rise and fall of the Irishman the documentary that not, right. now you're dealing with the true story the book is a true story but but the film, it gives you the summary of what happened, an Irish-American racketeer going up against the mafia, uh, bombs going off. But I'm, and don't get me wrong, I'm thrilled that, that that movie came out. I think they did a wonderful job. But essentially, that that's what, what happened, Gary. It was uh, just a war, really, for control of the rackets. And, and, and Danny Green was this character that was fearless, and they made numerous attempts to, to kill him. Some of them were humorous uh, in, in their failures to finally get him. But but they did finally get him in that parking lot in um, in, in Lyndhurst, uh, Ohio, on the east side of Cleveland. Yeah, they, they found what they found in Kansas City is once the war started, you know, normally the mob, the mafia, Italian mafia, or Sicilian mafia, likes to get your, your best friend to take you out for drinks and dinner and play darts or something. We've had that and a variety of different things and then get you isolated alone 
and then take you out, or maybe even get you in a house or something like they did the Spilatro brothers, and then take you out. Well, once mm-hmm. that open warfare starts, and we had this in Kansas City, then nobody's going to get, you know, I'm not going to let you get anybody get next to me and get me alone unless, unless you're my blood brother. I mean, my blood brother, woman I grew up with uh, in the same, yeah. uh, fathered by the same father. They started out catching them in bars and running into bars and shooting them up and I mean, it was crazy, and then they went to the bombs, and God, they kept trying bombs after bombs, and one went off, and, and uh, two of them didn't, and uh, then missed. Then another one went off and missed them, and then the other side tried to bomb, and, and we were all over that and had an informant inside of that, that deal and took them off, and finally, finally, the bomb blew this guy, and he's, he was in a wheelchair, and they put him in a wheelchair, Carl, Sabella, or Carl Spiro, and they blew him clear up out, through the top of this little used car shack, his wheelchair too, and dumped him out in the parking lot. It was a huge wow, hazard. wow, wow. So uh, yeah, we had exactly the same thing here. You know, my question to you would be: This Danny Green and and his people were they really? You know, uh, wonder what their goal was. Now these guys, they kept telling other people they were moving in on the rackets, but you know, uh, they wanted like the fencing and and. They had a couple of main fences that the uh, Savella family had, and they wanted to move in on that operation so they could have the boosters all bring their stuff to, to him. And he was kind of working that way uh, and the other professional thieves, but but they didn't really have the brains and the wherewithal. to. They didn't have the connections with the Teamsters to, to get the skim out of Las Vegas and that kind of thing. Did Danny Green think that he could, and this John Nardi, did think they could move in on those kinds of rackets? Well, I think I think what it was was John Nardi knew the organization and he knew how things worked. Uh, Danny Green was more the muscle. He was the guy out on the streets. He's the one who had the crew, uh, and he had the uh, at least one guy uh, who who was a uh, uh, actually two guys who were bombers. I was going to ask you. You were talking about the bombings in Kansas City. Did you ever have a case where? The uh, bomber was actually killed prematurely by that that explosive going off while he was placing placing the package, as they would say. You know, we had one that he didn't get killed, but they found uh, pieces of his skin and blood in the car where he was trying to put it in the car. And this guy that he was trying to kill, uh, Sonny Bowen, came out and, and found his car. He didn't tell the police about this for quite some time. But but he said that there was there was like blood and and pieces of flesh and and apparently the bomb had gone off just as the guy was installing it. So we never had anybody killed. Did you guys have somebody killed putting it together? Yeah, we had we had two. Uh, wow. One one was probably uh, an accident, and and one was probably uh, in, intentional. I had a uh, uh, Danny Green's enforcer. Uh, who was planning a, a, a bomb on a car, and it went off prematurely. But the, the leading theory is that Danny Green actually set that bomb off really? because this mm-hmm. guy was um, what had recently gone and given a statement to Cleveland Police Intelligence Unit. And that scene is actually portrayed in the, uh, in the film, too. You know, we did have one where it, there was a quandary. We didn't know if it somebody set it off or the bomber actually set it off. I just happened to think of this one. He was The guy was going to a storage shed where there was about a case of dynamite stored inside, some guns and everything. And, and as he got to the front door of the storage shed, something went off and set off the bombs and did a sympathetic explosion, 
set off the bomb, the dynamite inside the shed and, and had one hell of an explosion. Years later, a couple of mob guys, uh, actually a mob informant will name a couple of mob guys who are now in jail for the rest of their lives for something else. Uh, and we'll name them as the people that planted a bomb just outside the front door of the storage shed. But they would have had to bury it inside the underneath the ground, I would think. I guess they could have put a box up next to the door and watched. And supposedly they watched and then set it off just as the guy got to the door. So I, I don't know. But it was crazy during those 70s, man. <laughs> it was bomb yeah. city. Well, that, that, that was actually, a, uh, you just described it, one of the attempts on Danny Green where he was... Uh, he was hiding out at his uh, girlfriend's apartment building, and they they planted uh, the the mob soldiers planted a bomb box. It was a, a welded piece of, uh, of of just steel yeah. uh, to direct the blast, and they planted this thing inside bushes where it couldn't readily be seen with with railroad spikes welded to it to anchor it into the ground. They were going to set it off by remote control. But they had been watching, and, and uh, there were a lot of older people who would meet each other coming in and coming out, and they would stop right there, and they, and, <laughs> and they would chit-chat. Oh. And so, so the, uh, the, the, the mob enforcers decided to abandon that effort, and later uh, a cooperating witness uh, tur- turned over the location of that box, and it was recovered along with the explosive. Uh, they, they had a, uh, to finally get them, they had... Uh when they brought in Ray Farida, the guy who eventually killed Danny Green, they actually tapped his phone, didn't they? I mean, that was that was uh, part of part of how they got him. I mean, they were actually they're getting pretty sophisticated towards the end. I mean, uh, roughly, they 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 tapped his phone, didn't they? They they did they did Cam. They, they were actually borrowing uh, one one of the uh, FBI's uh, <laughs> uh, strategies there. Yeah, they had I believe it was a tape recorder. They had a, an electronics expert who was a mob associate, and he was able to connect that recorder up to the phone line at the at the junction box. And then, you know, he'd leave it there for whatever, a few days or a week, and then he'd go retrieve it, and then mm. they'd go and sit and listen to these conversations. And that that's actually how they were able to get it get a get a location, get some time on the guy. One of the one of the older mobsters was complaining. The guy, the, speaking of Danny Green, said the guy don't keep no time. He don't keep no time. You know, he says he says he's going to be there at three o'clock. Yeah. The hell with it. He shows up at three forty five. He gets there <laughs> early. Damn unreliable to bomb. That's his problem. Yeah, that's interesting. We used to call that. Uh, uh, drug dealer time, you know, you don't, if you're buying narcotics undercover, you, a policeman will show up like 10 or 15 minutes early and be there and all ready to go. Uh, uh, a guy really wants to buy drugs, may be there and he may not, and he might be late. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, Danny Green was good at not keeping time. Yeah, it's pretty good. Was it was uh, that Celtic club and all that? That that's all bigger than life. But he really did that kind of stuff, didn't he? <laughs> he really did. I wish I had the one of the cards uh, in in front. I got some pictures here we could look at. But the, he actually had business cards printed up, and they were uh, green printing, of course, yeah. on a white background. He, he loved the color green. You know, Danny Green loved the color yeah. green. Green oh, yeah. jackets. Um, you know, I had the choice. I don't know how that color's coming through. I had the choice of a light blue sweater or a green sweater this morning. This, this green sweater was just crying out to be worn for this interview here. It's not. Rick, it's not quite. You got, um, you got the book there. Green, you, you got the book there with some of the pictures in it. Show us some of the damage on those bombs. 
Yeah, well, here here is the, um, this is actually the murder scene. It's got a caption attached to it, too. But, you know, when they planted the bomb, as, as you and Cam know, I'm sure, uh, they didn't plant the bomb on his car. They planted the bomb on, a, on another car. They called it a Joe Blow car, you know, a car registered to a fictitious name. So all they had to do was, was um, park the car next to Danny Green's car. And when he came out of his dental appointment, as, as is also portrayed in the um, film, that's when they detonated by remote control. And this happened in, in Lyndhurst, Ohio, at a medical building. Yeah, the car on the, the left is the, uh, is the Joe Blow car. That's the uh, Chevy Nova that they planted the bomb car in. And Danny was getting into the, um, uh, the Lincoln and uh, it went off, and he was he was killed uh, instantaneously. And you could see, you could see him, you know, his body laying, I think, behind the uh, Lincoln there on the ground. Yeah, that was uh, the biggest case the city of uh, Lyndhurst ever had. How uh, bad? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. uh, but the law enforcement, you know, they did a fantastic job putting together a um, collaboration of agencies. I mean, the Cleveland Police Intelligence, the FBI, and and Lyndhurst Police, and so many other agencies, and the uh, Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office, and they banded together to uh, to solve this uh, crime. There were state charges first, then there were federal racketeering charges that followed. Remind us, uh, they made somebody on that bombing, right? When uh, the, the two guys, Ray Ferrito and uh, Ron Carabia, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were, were, when they were leaving uh, after they had set that, that bomb, and they, they wanted this guy so bad, they even had a backup crew there. They had a backup crew with guns. They had a, a high-powered rifle and a handgun. And, one, and these were two ex-cons that wanted to get in good with... Uh, one of the uh, one of the mob higher ups, and uh, he was saying, "I'll go right up in the dentist's office and shoot him right in the chair." <laughs> yeah, I, I saw an interview with Farida. He's uh, he's comes across as as kind of a kind of a dopey guy, but he's at the, when you hear him talk, he's he's pretty cold. He's all business. It sounds like man. He 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 does not have any compunction about about killing. To hear him talk, he's well. I just uh, I wanted to be a part of it, and I do whatever it. I mean, he he really. Yep, right. That that was that was him. How'd they make him on that, man? That's uh, those those cases. We never made anybody on any of our murders. Yeah, well, well, basically, it was there was a couple of witnesses, a young couple, but they they happened to be in the area, and the way these guys were in the in the getaway car, one of them was in the front, and one of them was in the back. And you know, if you think about it, that in and of itself is, is a little suspicious. I mean, it's a, unless yeah. it's a, there's only two two circumstances yeah. I could think that wouldn't be suspicious, and that would be a police car with someone under arrest, you know, <laughs> yeah, in right. the back, or or a taxi cab, <laughs> or a limo, I guess, maybe a limo, <laughs> maybe, yeah. So, Shazad, so uh, yeah. they they heard this explosion and they looked over and I guess saw these um these two in this car thought it was suspicious, so they copied down the license plate ah. number. And the girl in the car happened to be an artist. She was a sketch artist. So she locked eyes with the driver. That was Ferrito, Ray Ferrito. And she went home and she drew a sketch of this guy. And I don't don't have it with me. It's in in the book, but it's a great... um, When you put the sketch next to the mugshot of Ferrito... That's how they were able to. That's one. One of the guys said, "Hey, that that looks like somebody I know." And pulled out a mugshot. Damn, if that's not Ray Ferrito from Erie, Pennsylvania, he's a pretty distinctive looking guy with those eyebrows and all too. So I, you know, 
Yeah, bushy the, eyebrows and the and, and, and the the modern hairdo for the time, mm-hmm. thick thick hair, and um, so she did a real good uh, real good job with that. And uh, of course, there was a lot of fear back then too, being uh, witnesses to a uh, oh, yeah. to a mob oh, assassination. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there were, there was just, uh, you know, they made mistakes and, and one thing led to another and pretty soon they had, uh, Ray Ferrito, um, and, and, uh, and eventually he would, uh, he would flip and implicate the others and the dominoes just started falling in the, in the Cleveland mob. Hmm, interesting. That's kind of the beginning of the end for them. Why didn't, and Angelo Leonardo ended up. Flipping, flipping. It was that. Any, do you remember? Was that anything to do with with this? I, I can't remember why he flipped. Uh, well, it had to do probably. Well, it was started certainly by um, you know once once Chandra Burns was killed and then Danny Green started getting bolder and then John Scalish died. Uh, you, you could tie it all in together, but uh, after um, the federal indictments into the murder of Danny Green, the convictions that happened after the trial and all that, and uh, what was left of the mob, uh, tr- they tried to regroup, and they, they merged with a drug ring on the west side of oh, town. Oh, that's right. And, uh, but- and it, was like the, uh, it was like the movie Goodfellas. You know, everything was going along real nice, and Tony Bennett's on the soundtrack singing the, the nice songs. Everybody's making money. And then they get involved in drugs, yeah. and all hell starts breaking loose. You know, uh, Jimi Hendrix comes in with the electric guitar and, and uh, <laughs> murders, murders left and right. right. And, and that's, that's just what happened in Cleveland. And, and Angelo Lanaro got caught up in that uh, and, and wound up being sentenced to, to life in prison. And that's that. what uh, led to his, uh, him flipping. That upper echelon of Cleveland—they were all much older. I've what I've what I've heard is John Scalish didn't—he really didn't have any any guys made. This is sort of sort of leads to John Nardi's gripe. He didn't really make any guys since the '40s because of that. That upper echelon guys like like Avoli and and Scalish before and Leonardo—they were the last of the guys who who actually got you know were were formally inducted. So you've got those guys by the '70s were were, were pretty old and. Uh, Right, so, so the younger guys were all would all basically be considered associates. Is that is that right? Right. There, there was uh, one of uh, Angelo Leonardo's lieutenants was caught on a uh, FBI wiretap talking about that very thing, how they had lost their middle management. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, you got this guy who's almost eighty, this guy's in his seventies, and then it's all the way down to me in my forties. We're missing the guy who's in his fifties and the guy who's in his sixties. And uh, there's some truth to that. And I think, you know, John Scalish, the longtime mob boss, w- was actually one of the uh, mobsters who was at that big meeting in upstate New York. And what was that? Uh, Appalachian. 50, 50, no, the, the, the years, 58, yeah, maybe 57? 57. 57. Yeah, so he was, he was there. And that really, as you know, shed a, a, a light on the, on the mob nationally. And so I think it might have been more like in the 60s and then the early, and then the 70s where, where John Scalish really didn't want to bring any new blood into the organization, and and probably the last uh, there was a couple last guys who were made, and they were really they were older older men. They weren't weren't guys you would think you know they're in their thirties maybe. They made mm-hmm. their bones as you had put it earlier, Gary. You know, uh, they made their bones with a, with a murder maybe, and they, they they get made. These were guys who were like were in their sixties, you know. And and that was under that was after John Scalish died. That was under Jack Licavoli, and it had to do with the war with with Danny Green. I tell you, those mob wars, uh, these idiots, uh, and it's happened all over the United States. These mob wars are what 
but decimates them more than anything. Right. Rico helped, but those mob wars, once they start dropping bodies, man, law enforcement pulls out all stops. The FBI here in Kansas City, they had transferred agents in. We had this mob war going, and in the middle of the mob wars, when they discovered the skim, well, they're transferring agents in already, and, and we've got our whole unit is just dedicated to these guys. We let all other things go, and we're just dedicated. Twelve guys and two sergeants just dedicated to the mafia, where usually we only have about six, and the other six would be doing other little things like, you know, different groups that were, you know, Ku Klux Klan and, and groups that would advocate civil disorder and those kinds of things. We just let all that go and, and just focused on the crime family. So that, that when, let's say, start killing people that's uh you know that's the beginning of the end for them yeah well they you know they they have their principles and once uh you know once Shonda <laughs> yeah. burns was killed now he wasn't a he wasn't an actual member he well you could call him a member but he wasn't obviously a made member but he was very respected and an ally of, of them and sort of operated independently but was friendly with them and then when the war started and they they killed uh, Leo Mosseri I mean like dead body never found yeah. he was Jack Licavoli's uh, underboss and he was also his cousin and then they and then they took out uh, one of the primary enforcers a guy named Eugene Ciasulo they they um they uh, detonated a bomb on his front porch, and he was uh, uh, seriously injured. It would take him months to uh, recuperate, so he was out of the picture. But once Mosseri was dead, they knew they had to uh, to get uh, Danny Green. And I mean, formidable organization still, even at that point, even though you know mistakes had been made, and Danny Green seemed to have uh, nine nine lives in the luck of the Irish, but. Uh, you know, and John, John Nardi, they believed, responsible, Danny Green responsible for Leo Mosseri's murder. So so those two had to go, and, and uh, it took a little time, but eventually they were, they were, uh, they were murdered. Yeah, they, they planted a bomb in a guy's home. See, that's unusual. We had kind of, that was the beginning of this war, is the, the upstarts killed a guy as he pulled into his house. Uh, killed one of the Savella faction as he pulled in to go in his garage right at his home, and that was unheard of. I mean, you might kill somebody walking out of the bar. You might kill somebody at their office or their parking lot outside their office, uh, but you did not go into their home and do stuff. And, boy, when they did that, it was uh, it was full-on war. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In this case, you really, I mean, if you look at it uh, a little deeper, it really wasn't so much a, a, a mob war as it was the mafia's war, really, with, with what Angelo Leonardo would call a gang, you know, yeah, Dan, right. Danny Green's gang. You see, that that wasn't, you know, that wasn't a family, you know, what a denigration of the word right. family. That's terrible. But he would say that's not, you know, that's not a crime family. That was, that was what you would call a gang. Danny Green's guys, you know, and they're, they're planting that bomb on, on um, Eugene Ciasulo's front porch. They're not following any rules. They, they don't care, but, that, but they planted it on the front porch, you know, and, and to the credit of these guys too. I mean, if, if you can, I mean, if it's even right to give them any credit at all, you know, uh, they, they did not, you had mentioned it before, Gary, they did not want to kill outsiders. You know, they, they really didn't want that. They had rules in place. Um, you know, you don't kill a cop or a prosecutor or a judge or anything like that. And you, you avoid, um, uh, civilian casualties and they were, they were pretty good about that. I mean, there were some, there were some exceptions like the, uh, in the Youngstown area, the Mahoning County prosecutor who was uh shot and almost killed um but generally they stuck to that unlike uh you know let's say uh drug drug cartel 
You know, I mean, if we're sitting, if yeah. we're sitting in a room and they're after me, they don't care if they they kill everybody in the room. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah I tell you what, those Mexicans down there, you don't want them after you. They'll kill your family, <laughs> your extended family, and Colombians. They'll kill everybody to get to you and stop you doing whatever you're doing. There are no rules. That's one thing you have to admire the mafia for. They have certain rules. All right, well, Rick, this has been great. Cam, this this is this has been a wonderful interview, and it's kind of works so all having three people on here. Cam, we Absolutely. didn't know how this was going to work. So, Rick, I, I appreciate your helping us with this. And, uh, Rick, you got any last words you'd like to say? We've been at this about uh, 50-some minutes. So well, we, we talked episode. about some pictures. Let, let me show you just a couple of quick um, pictures. So this is this is Danny Green. Tell me how, how we look here. Is that, that about right? Okay, so that's the real Danny Green, and here is Ray Stevenson. The, oh, uh, yeah, I see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Portraying Danny Green in the in a lot the of headshots to find him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then you had talked about um, some of the other actors, and here, here's a guy in the white shirt. Uh, that's, that's Vinny Vela, who I got a chance to meet. Oh, yeah. Um, he was in the Casino. Yeah, he was in Casino. He was in uh, uh, Sopranos. And uh, just a great guy, and uh, unfortunately, he passed away within the past year. And that's my uh, that's my um, uh, agent, film manager on the the left there in the red shirt. That's Peter Miller. And then on the um, on the right, that's Tommy Reed, uh, who was the original producer who uh, envisioned uh, the Danny Green story on the big screen. But this has been great, guys. Uh, I've ha- I've had a ball. Absolutely, Rick. Uh, Rick, you want to come back and talk to us about Shonda Burns here in a month or so, don't you? That would be great. I'd love to do it. Yeah, I want to get into that. That that really sounds interesting. A lot of questions about uh, Shondor and, and yeah. the Jewish mob there. Really? Okay. All right, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Cam. Thank you, uh, Rick. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was an interesting interview, and we're going to have Rick Perello come back. He's a good guy. Um, if you're a veteran, you believe you have problems that might be PTSD connected to your service, Call your local vet center or the VA hospital in your area. And and also, there's this national hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Press 1 if you're a vet. Or go to www.ptsd.va.gov. And this site contains a lot of resources. You'll be able to get a lot of information about the problem of PTSD. Don't forget, I got my Venmo app. Hit me up after this COVID thing's over. You can hit me up for a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer. Jinx Law. Got my two movies out there, Brothers Against Brothers, which is a whole lot like uh, Kill the Irishman. Got uh, Gangland Wire, which tells you all about the war over the River Key in Kansas City. And then the uh, Skimming from Las Vegas. Got my book, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Be sure and get the Kindle version because that's got the wiretaps, the actual audio from the wiretaps hooked up to different sections of the book. Good night, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.